0: Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest has perhaps the biggest obsession of anyone I've interviewed so far. In fact, he turned his obsession into a show on Disney+. Plus. He's the host of the series, Prop Culture. It's Dan Lanigan. We talk about what it's like going into a Disney archives prop warehouse, getting to see the amazing props from films like The Nightmare Before Christmas and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and working with action star Dolph Lundgren on his reality show, Race to the Scene, in which contestants went to the locations of famous movie scenes and recreated stunts from films like The Terminator, E.T., and Pulp Fiction. Let's want to do a couple things here. First of all... um, I know this is the universal question we ask. I feel like it's this, that time during all the things going on in this world. uh, How have you been coping with uh, being sheltered in place and, and all that? How's your family? How are you?
1: Uh, My family is, you know, so far so good. We haven't had anybody uh, get sick that we're aware of with uh, this uh, crazy uh, COVID thing, Um, which we're very lucky um uh we've been doing okay i mean a lot of people have it much worse than we do Uh, i've been spending a lot of time uh building legos with my daughter and uh uh, building minecraft worlds with my daughter so uh it's been good quality time uh in in the play department certainly
0: nice nice um so Clearly, uh, and a consequence of all this stuff is the amount of stuff that everyone's watching online, including your show. <laughs> Can you just tell me a little bit about Prop Culture on Disney Plus?
1: Yeah, uh, Prop Culture is a show that investigates some of our favorite movies that, were, that are a part of the Disney catalog that uh, people love and I certainly do love. And we dive into some of the lesser known stories about the making of these movies through the people that help build the props and costumes and interact with the props and costumes. And we get to learn more about those pieces themselves, the set pieces, the artwork, you know, uh, totally get into the geekiness of it and uh, celebrate what's great about these films.
0: Obviously you just kind of described for a lot of people, what would be a dream job. And I'm curious, like, how did you, come about the series and specifically with Disney
1: uh so I've um I've been a prop collector you know obsessive movie collector for over 20 years now um and ever since I was a kid I love film so I've always been you know you know a fanboy um and through prop collecting I actually got involved in uh some docu-series and reality television work uh, through people that I know and just the knowledge that I have. Uh, And now um, I've been able to take that opportunity and now turn it into actually trying to do a show, which I had been trying to pitch a show for probably five years now uh, about prop collecting. But I wanted to do it from a non-financial perspective, a a, a non- uh, 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 you know, a, a, a perspective from of the love of the films, and you know, talked to a number of different production companies and networks, and they liked the idea, but they wanted to go a little bit more about what the value was, auctions, stuff like that. Disney had an opportunity to pitch it to Disney Plus when they were starting up the network, and next thing you know, you know, they're like totally on to what we wanted to do, and. Here we are, you know, a year and a half later, we have a show almost two years actually later uh, from pitching it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just been a dream come true.
0: And what was your first time going to the or one of these prop warehouses? What was that like the first time you went?
1: It was overwhelming. Um it, you know, seeing all this interesting stuff, some of it labeled, some of it not trying to pick out what's what from where it's, uh, it's super cool. I mean, you know, it kind of reminds you of when I was younger, I used to go down to the Disney MGM studios in Florida with my family and, uh, and Walt Disney world in general, but Disney MGM studios was always my favorite and the backlot tour and the prop, department tour was always my favorite. And it's kind of like that, but on steroids without forced lines and gates covering everything. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing.
0: <laughs> and I imagine there has to be things that are off limit. A, uh, but I wonder what those things are, if you could share it, if at all, anything like that.
1: When we go into the archives for us for an episode, we're there to see material from that, from that episode or from that, from that, uh, movie. And, of course, we use it to re- reconnaissance for other films that we're hoping to do or are doing um but we really can't dive into crates that I might wanna see just because it's cool um or pull out pieces like I would have loved to have pulled out the Vincent from Black Hole and taken a look at how this one works compared to other ones I've seen in the private uh the private world or um you know. Open up the wardrobe from the back and kind of peek, you know, step through. There's not that you can't do those kind of things from, you know, from Narnia. Um, So, and there's a lot of sections that are actually closed off that I couldn't get into either. So, I don't know what those super secret areas are. They they don't trust me enough yet. Yet, notice I said (laughs) yet. You did say
0: yet. In the in the show, you cover um, eight movies. Um, Who comes up with the films you cover?
1: Well, uh, my team and I put together lists of films that fall into the category that would fit on Disney Plus. So they're Disney movies, they're now Fox films, uh, they're you know, Lucasfilm, Marvel. And then we look at it from a couple different categories. We look at it from what kind of nostalgia factor is there. Uh, The older the film, the more nostalgia there is and the more impressive people and stories are that are talking about these films from from that many years ago. Um, There is what material potentially is out there, because, you know, since I've been collecting and I a lot of people I know have been collecting a long time, we have a general idea what we might or might not find. Or if something that we know is missing, but there's a good lead, we at least can follow that for the show. Um, and then there's uh, my personal interest, which takes part of it because it is from my perspective. Uh, and then ultimately, Disney uh, has a say because they, you know, want to have the movie on. They want the film on the service, so it's a, those things come together. But but I have a big uh, a big say in in the films. But ultimately, Disney, you know, it's it's Disney's network, and they get to choose what they like. But they've gone along with what we wanted to do. So.
0: And out of the the first season we saw is there one that particularly you talked about kind of the formula that goes into picking the films um and a part of that formula is your own personal interest is there one that was a hit home more for you than maybe the others I loved most of them
1: um Pirates is probably my least favorite and I wouldn't say and I don't I don't mean that as it's not a good film and it's not a fun film I really do love that movie but Nightmare Before Christmas and Who Framed Roger Rabbit are two of my all-time favorite films and being somebody who I'm always talking and thinking about movies you know that list is pretty big so um that was really that was, those two episodes are really important to me that we get it right and um and then Mary poppins from my own personal family history with that film uh but honestly every episode as we filmed it I learned more and became more obsessed with those movies anyways I mean that's the beauty of of my position and I'm super fortunate that I can actually take a movie that I already love and and at the end of this process of making this episode love it even more and I didn't even think that would be possible.
0: <laughs> um what's been the reaction you're getting from people who watch the show?
1: Uh it's been curious. I think they I, people seem to like it a lot. Um and I think they like it because they're seeing how the people that work on these movies are just regular people and that they get excited about this stuff too. And, you know, I think it's fun to see a goofball like myself kind of, you know, a fanboy at out. I think um, they're surprised to see how much love there is. Of from the people that work on these films for these movies. and, you know, I'm surprised uh, we've gotten a number of people that have, have, have reached out to me, both on the Internet and people that I know that have watched an episode of from a, about a movie that they've never seen. And they've actually gone and watched the movie because they had no interest in seeing that film until I expressed through the show and everyone else on the, the episode expressed why it's so important. And, you know, that makes me feel really good that I'm bringing new eyes to these wonderful movies, because, you know, that's the goal.
0: And does it change your perspective of these movies that you've seen? Because now you're getting to see, like, the actual items that were in the movies? Well, I mean, it does change the perspective,
1: but not from a enjoyment level. I just have so much more respect when I get to talk to the people. You know, it's like, you know, Penny uh, Rose from um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, she is a wonderful lady. And she is so warm but so on top of her game and to see how she came to the decisions for her costume change or costume decisions and what she she pitched to the director, I mean it, it totally makes sense and there's a there's a, a, a logic and a, a a process that you can learn, but she lives it it's it's you know it's just getting to meet these people and just getting a little bit of their wisdom is just so great. It's so great.
0: And going back to something you're talking about about the value of these items, obviously that's kind of like the headline item. This thing is worth this much money. But I'm wondering too, um, how much does the story behind the the prop or the, the costume factor into the appeal you think?
1: When you buy a prop, you buy, you add something to your collection. You're you're quote unquote buying the story, right? You're 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 accepting that this piece is historically re- relevant. That history is a story. So and that history connects it to your own emotional attachment to the movie. So that is what I mean. Yes, visually it's super cool, and 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 how it comes together and everything is super important. But it's that tan- it's an intangible. Quality that you get through its historical story, that you know you want to confirm, but that that that's what the
0: value is, in my opinion. The nostalgia, and nostalgia is a big part of it, it seems. And um, I guess the other the other question I have kind of goes into the first season. Seems like it was a really big hit. I'm wondering, is there going to be a second season of Prop Culture?
1: I hope so. <laughs> I okay. don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, gotcha. I don't know, honestly uh no 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 shenanigans i uh disney you know takes their time to make the decisions on what they're gonna do i mean they're i would hope so i mean i you know jason henry who's my partner on the show he and i have already got a pitch ready to propose to do you know a number of episodes for season two but we'll see we'll see what happens crossing my fingers my
0: toes my legs everything i can cross <laughs> here i'll knock out some wood for you too there how about that thank you um <laughs> But it does seem like your show kind of exists in this really neat culture that we have. I think of like uh, people like Adam Savage. I think of even shows like Pawn Stars where we have this fascination with nostalgia and things from, um, even if it wasn't actually in our childhood that that was maybe a part of our childhood like toys and movies. And I'm wondering like, yeah, I'm wondering like when did you realize the value for that for yourself? like maybe as you got into prop collecting or just as a movie fan? Uh, I think
1: I've subconsciously known it as most of us do. When you watch a movie and you fall in love with that film and you buy action figures and stuff like that uh, to say that I became conscious of it was it probably around the time that I it was before I started prop collecting. But as I realized that you could, collect this stuff and, and how people were spending money on it. I think the money, although I don't necessarily like to discuss it, the money is a a weird barometer of how successful a film is and thereby how important a piece is, you know, and how it relates to the, to the, to the culture in general.
0: Now I know you've talked about this before in other interviews, and I want to get into some of the props here. But your first, you said your first significant prop you bought was from the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But there was something you didn't know at the time when you bought it. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Uh, When I bought it, I bought it. I came across it on, I I think it was eBay or what eBay used to be, Um, and it, it looked like it was from the film. And at the time, there weren't really in the, the market recasts or, you know, there were no 3D prints and you, you know, it was, it was very unique. So I saw it, it looked right. I reached out to the person that was doing the auction, um, back and forth conversation. This person wound up working for a, let's just say his, the provenance of who he was made me feel very confident it was, it was a good piece. So I bought it, um, had it for many years, and then since then have come across copies of it and found out that actually it was a giveaway, a, produ- a production giveaway that was done after the film was made to high-level people. The version I have was exactly like these others. So it, I bought what I thought was a screen-use piece. It turns out that it was a crew gift. Because they're beloved icons, and in their own right, these props... A lot of people make replicas of them, and then somebody may take a replica and sell it as an original. And if it's a really good replica, how are you going to tell? So, again, goes back to what I was saying before. It's all about the story, but yet even though your interest is about the story, you still want to make sure you're not getting ripped off. So you have to do your research and and try and find out as much as you can to confirm that what you're getting is what you think it is.
0: Wow, that is an amazing story because I mean, it's like exciting then kind of like sad, but then it's like, well, it makes sense because it's also probably taught you a lesson it did um it did. very early and on, again, yeah,
1: the person I got it from very well might have thought what it was, what he sold it to me. So I, you know,' I, it's, it's there's so much ambiguity in this world. You know, if you go out and buy a replica pulse rifle, you know it's a replica, right? But if you're gonna go and shell down, 30 grand and you think you're going to get an original, you probably should do a ton of research and make sure it is what it is.
0: Okay. So uh, our head producer of this podcast is a huge Nightmare Before Christmas fan. And she wanted me to ask you, what was it like seeing the hill in person and the Harlequin demon in person?
1: you know they're both pretty special pieces to me i uh had seen previously um i had known fon davis and i had seen his s- snow covered spiral top uh i don't know probably a good 10 years ago um so i had seen that section and then uh in real time wind up meeting um or wind up seeing the uh the spiral hill that is flexible Uh, And that was super cool, because I know that was the one that swapped out from the one that Fawn had. And we had those two together on on film, and I hadn't seen that before. But then to see the actual full-size Spiral Hill, that uh, the interesting thing about that piece, I don't believe we get into it in the episode, is that is a Spiral Hill that everything uh, was filmed on for that final sequence, or that sequence of Jack walking up the hill and singing in the beginning of the film, and then the snow-covered sequence at the end. They Hmm. did the the sequence with uh, the black uh, 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 paint job and texture, and then they covered that up with the snow. So at the end of production, after they had done the snow scenes, they were asked that they needed to use Spiral Hill for the movie poster. And at that point, they were like, well we've already covered it with snow and there's really not a good way of pulling that off. They're like, well, you can either remake it or you can modify the one that's there. So what they did was they pulled the snow off the top section got removed because they had to recreate that. That's the one that Fawn has. So the one that Fawn has actually was used in the snow covered and the non snow covered version. And then they had to retexture the entire hill. So that hill is the original hill from the film, but the texture on it all of the the uh, the plaster with the with the paint is actually specific to the movie poster only because they had to pull a lot of that off in getting the snow off it. So it's interesting even though that is a amazing piece that you think of from the film it's actually been modified because of the needs of production and that happens all the time
0: with this stuff. That poster is so iconic so it's amazing it that even though that was like a repurposed, you know, hill that it actually became almost as iconic as the movie for a lot of people, you know? Oh, yeah. Or an iconic representation. Yeah. Um, Now, you personally have a large collection of Nightmare stuff, including uh, some Jack Skellington puppets. Can you just tell me a little bit about how did you get that and what did it feel like the first time you had a Jack Skellington puppet?
1: Yeah, so I've only, I've got one Jack Skellington. Um, It would seem to be, greedy that I would have more. <laughs> there are more than there were more than one that were made for the film. but um, I've got a full-scale version which has an armature um, and I got when I got that, I was very I, it already had the Roger Rabbit incident happen so I was very cautious and I was very concerned that this wasn't real. So when I when I bought it or when I picked it up from another collector, I wound up uh, getting an opportunity to go out and meet Henry Selleck uh, while he was working on Monkey Bone and Benita DiCarlo. That's actually oh, wow. when I met Benita DiCarlo first and Henry Selleck first. So they invited me out to come out on set. So I got to watch them do a little bit of work on Monkey Bone. And I brought Jack, and they basically, a lot of people worked on Monkey Bone, worked on, on uh, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So I brought Jack. Uh, Bonita looked at it, said, "Yep, this is one of the Jacks we used. This is one of the ones we built." I showed it to Henry. He said the same thing. And then he, I got to bring him around to the different departments, and they all—it was like bringing a celebrity through. Uh, they all were super excited to see Jack again. It was really an amazing moment.
0: Oh man, I'm just getting like goosebumps hearing it. it's so cool. Um, I'm wondering also, as you step away, from, maybe from Disney specifically, uh, just on movies as a whole, is there a kind of quote-unquote like Holy Grail of props or, or costumes for you? Uh,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, I've mentioned this to a few, to a few other, um, in a few other interviews. But uh, Blade Runner is one of my all-time favorite. It is my all-time favorite film. That and and Raiders Lost Ark, but probably Blade Runner creeps up above that. And uh, I've picked up, uh, you know, a couple of significant pieces over the years. Uh, one of which I was uh, on a one of the tested segments with Adam Savage. And showed off uh, my Blade Runner uh, blaster, which is the hero. But uh, the trench coat that that uh, Ford wears as Deckard in Blade Runner is kind of one of those mythical pieces that I would love to track down and add to my collection. I've got the other parts of the costume that Ford wore, so his undersuit, his jacket, his tie, his pants, but that that uh, trench coat has eluded me. So. I don't know if anybody out there knows where an original is and somebody's looking to find a new home for it. You give me a heads up.
0: <laughs> um, let me ask, because you mentioned you, uh, you have a daughter before. What is it like for her that her father has all these props and cool movie collectibles?
1: You know, it's kind of just normal for her as weird as that sounds um you know she she knows that the stuff is important to me and it's important to other people and she it's it's exciting for her to see people get excited about it but in general she doesn't really connect the pieces to the movies only recently has she done that like the narnia stuff um, she is, uh, she loves the Narnia films and she's really, she gets excited when she gets to see those. Although from a very, from she was very small, um, probably before she was born, I had acquired one of the, I, I acquired an Aslan puppet that was used in, uh, the, uh, the second film, Prince Caspian. It's a, uh, it's a puppet head, full size of Aslan that, uh, is used was used for the sequence where where Lucy talks to Aslan and they have their conversation in the woods. Um, she's always been infatuated with that, just as a lion. So she we would come down to my display space and you she would see it and she would say, "Daddy, can I pet Aslan?" I'm like, "Okay, let's wash your hands." No one else can touch it. You know, no one else can touch him. You can pat him very gently on the nose and she would treat it with respect. I'm like, okay, remember Aslan isn't like a normal lion. You would never touch a normal lion like this, right? She's like, I know Aslan is not tame, <laughs> uh, but, but um, it was, it, it's amazing. And to now that she's seen the movies over and over and over, it's even more important to her. It's, it's uh, pretty cool. But most of the other stuff, like, you know, I have a lot of science fiction stuff. She could care less about that. Um, You know, it's Jack Skellington's cool. She likes Nightmare, but she, again, it's just, it's just like a toy to her, you know, the way it looks. I mean, she doesn't interact with it as a toy, but it's different how kids look at this stuff. They don't understand the, the, the connection. And I think you only get that with, as you grow older and you, you have your own personal history with the film that this stuff becomes really important.
0: Well, to that point too, I'm wondering as movies move more and more towards CGI, computer effects, What do you think that means for prop and costume collecting? Obviously like hand props are probably still going to exist in some form and costume to some extent, but we also see actors in those like motion cap suits and stuff like that. What do you think that means for you as a collector, or even if your daughter got into that later on?
1: You know, I've thought about that a lot uh, over the years um, as computers, as computers become more and more important to the world of movie making. Um, I think the use of CGI is a artistic uh, choice. And I see, in some ways, physical objects being filmed becoming more and more commonplace again. Um, Not, you know, location photography... I think is going to become much more uncommon because of the technology that they have, like they used on the Mandalorian, where they have these, you know, these giant LCD screens, specialized LCD screens, and they can do set extensions digitally, but then they have physical props in the actual space and it looks so real. And I think the technology and the art are kind of combining now. And I think people are, you know, directors and and production companies and studios to a certain degree are getting past the idea, oh, it's so cool to do a CGI film. Let's do it the best way that's possible that gives our audience the best experience. And, hey, if we get some cool stuff out of it, that's great. And and honestly, you know, nowadays there's so many props that are designed in the computer anyways and they're printed. So you're still – you're getting a nice blend of the two worlds of, of – Physical CGI and and you know uh, uh, handmade. Um, I, I think it's going to continue that way. I certainly if you know if I have my druthers and I continue to uh, you know move forward to direct some of my own projects I'm developing. I'm certainly going to do it that way. And I think there's a lot of directors that like having this stuff because it's easy. In my opinion, it's easier to know what you're going to shoot and see it on camera than to have to visualize it later and make those decisions later. And by pushing those decisions off to later, the methodology or the, the, the story throughput in your head changes. But if you lock into something and you plan for it, so you shoot it and you get it done, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's something to that that makes it feel more cohesive, in my opinion.
0: You did a series called Race to the Scene that had contestants compete in a race, performing stunts from famous movies like E.T., yep. Pulp Fiction, and Terminator. What was your role on the show?
1: I uh, I created the show. I me and my good friend who worked with me on Prop Culture, uh, Andy Klimczak, came up with the idea. It was meant to be a docu series about when it was pitched. It was a docu series about revisiting locations uh, uh, from films and 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 matching up shots and and doing that kind of kind of a version of Prop Culture for locations and. It eventually it kind of got, I will not say twisted, but it kind of turned into this game show thing. And that's what sold. And, you know, so we, we, I wasn't the showrunner, Andy and I wasn't the showrunner. Um, there was another guy that was doing that, but we were there just basically writing bits. So we did like a, a number of uh, a lot of the stuff that Dolph said was stuff that we wrote. And um, hmm. we interacted with him a lot on the show and he was a lot of fun to work on. But you know the games themselves weren't necessarily our, our design, but it was fun. I mean, it was a fun show to do for the Reels Network.
0: There's a thing I do called Pick One. I give you two choices and you pick one. It doesn't mean it's better or the best. You can also talk it out. In fact, that is encouraged. Okay, first one is costume designer or prop master?
1: Uh, You get, prop master gets involved with a lot more disciplines overall than a costume designer. Because anything can be a prop, whereas costumes generally are just worn.
0: So they're usually some sort of fabric. Okay, next one is who framed Roger Rabbit or The Nightmare Before
1: Christmas? Oh, well, I could do this.
0: Again, you could talk it out.
1: Talk it out. It's not about which was better necessarily. No necessarily, necessarily. Uh, <laughs> they they equally they they have equal place in my heart for either film. I would say I mean stop is a big part of my life and that film is a big part of that. But I mean, Who Frame Roger Rabbit is such a unique movie and so well executed and so amazing. I say Who Frame Roger Rabbit. Sorry, Jack
0: I say one <laughs> one of the fun things that's been on Disney plus has been seeing people who've never seen that movie see it and just react to how amazing it is it's, and it's I remember seeing it so in the theater often. so awesome it's amazing okay, these are again this is just it's mostly fun, but prop culture or pawn stars
1: uh you know my answer on that
0: <laughs> Pawn stars of
1: course no props, prop <laughs> culture. I mean, here we're—it's well, it, a different show. It's a different show.
0: It is a different show. That's I mean, what guys—it's
1: a, a different POV. It's a different show. Those guys do great work. I mean, you know, they've really tapped into something special, and you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's cool. It's cool. Our show is—is is a different format, but um, I hope we have just a small amount of the success that uh, that those guys <laughs> have
0: had. I'd love to get advice. They- from that. Yeah, see, they, they've kind of become pretty big with that show. I big, think, so. they're massive. Right. They're huge. They're like, uh, I got to talk to Rick Harrison, and he would show me pictures of them. That's cool. Being greeted at a like a Formula One race in, like, Monaco or something like that. I'm like, oh my God, oh, yeah. how does that even work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, a couple more here. Uh, Dolph Lundgren or Sylvester Stallone? Dolph.
1: I will break you. Yeah. No, Dolph all the way. I mean, I I'm, say, sure, I'm sure Sylvester's cool. Sly's got to be cool, but...
0: Dolph, yeah. I mean, hey,
1: he did a show with me. He made my show happen, so I gotta, I gotta go with Dolph.
0: Okay, in uh, the last one, and this is—you're gonna hate me for this—Blade Runner or Indiana Jones?
1: Bl- wait, Blade Runner or you mean Deckard or Indiana Jones or Blade Runner or the series?
0: I specifically did not fill that, out. <laughs> so you can figure it. Uh, um. Because if it was Deckard or Indiana Jones, uh, well, that's still a tough one too, right?
1: Yeah, I guess you're right. I but guess I you're as, right. You no, know, yeah, that was, that was very smart. Now that I think you, – you're right. You you did that very specifically. Um, because Blade, yeah, Deckard versus Indy, I'd say I'd have to go with Indy. But Blade yeah, Runner mean, versus Indiana Jones <laughs> film, I, 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 uh, Blade Runner.
0: Okay. Can I just dis- offer you a sales that Indiana Jones might be the right answer because – it is a series. Yeah, there's two Blade Runners. Oh, so When no, you ask me this tomorrow,
1: I'm going to say Indiana Jones. So, you know,
0: <laughs> right now I'm um, sitting and- in a
1: room. My my collection room is designed to look like Marion's Bar. So you, you got to know that I do love me some indie.
0: I want to thank Dan for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And until next week, take care.